Hey y'all, welcome back. Today on the podcast we have uh, Aubrey Marcus, another dude that, um, A, I didn't know he was a fan of my music, but I'm a huge fan of his podcast, I'm a huge fan of his company on it, and just a huge fan of him in general as a dude, he's a real seeker, um, and I really appreciate that, especially in the modern era, dudes that try to find the end of comfort and then base jump off the side of it. Um, we go into psychedelics, ceremonies, he did a six-day sensory deprivation retreat where he was in a room for six days by himself with no light or stimuli of any kind. Um, yeah, Aubrey's just a badass dude, uh, and I really look forward to, uh, to building a relationship with him and, and getting to know him outside of the internet, um, and getting to do one of his crazy-ass workouts with him, uh, whenever I make it to Texas, but, um, yeah, super pumped to have him on, as always, like, subscribe, share with your friends, and, uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and, uh, yeah, without further ado, Aubrey Marcus. Aubrey Marcus, welcome to the Sad Song Podcast, dude. Thanks, brother. Happy to be here, man. How you feeling today? I mean, it's an interesting day for everybody. This is the day after election day. I don't know when this podcast is going to release, but uh, you know, this is a very interesting day. We're kind of hanger here. I know it's. Um, I've been. I think I've been doing a pretty good job of not kind of giving into the chaos uh, of it all because I think that's like the easiest thing to do is like you know, feel flustered and shitty like the rest of the world. And I feel like everywhere we can kind of feel that like collective. Mm. I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to buy into it, man. I'm with you, man. I mean, it's, uh, I've been very apolitical most of my life. I really believe that people lead and politicians follow. So my entire focus has been on, you know, bringing myself to the best possible place and helping to share all the lessons from my struggles and triumphs and, in this journey and and that's been my focus but it seems like um the political landscape is of a little bit more importance now than usual so i'm definitely paying a lot more attention i mean usually i'm just like yeah all right whatever you know like politicians are gonna politic and uh and that's not really going to affect you know but uh it seems like it uh you know, it actually counts a little bit more, <laughs> counts a little bit more right now. And maybe that's just me buying into the the narrative, you know, but um, it does seem like there's, there's a little bit more, uh, more at stake here. Yeah, I agree with you. But I think, you know, my big focus has been on trying to use my voice to tell people that none of these, regardless of who wins this election, you know, they're not coming to save you. They're not going to come make your immediate life or circle better. Right. Um, and the thing that freaks me out the most is, you know, I see like, um, you know, being heavily involved in mixed martial arts, I, and I know you're, you're involved in those communities too. Mm -hmm. Here you have a lot of people that are, that you would consider close friends that are really conservative and then really close friends that would be considered super liberal that are really good people. And Absolutely. yeah, and it's really interesting, this narrative, um, on the left, it's that if you are a Trump supporter, that you are racist and this and this and this. And if you're a Biden supporter, then you support rioting and looting. And they're just each side is kind of buying into being told what other people are like. And it's like, well, have you ever sat down and had lunch with a Trump supporter and talked to them? You know, <laughs> right. 
So right. that's a man, I'm just trying to push for civility and understanding and um yeah, it just it's it's really weird how divided we are right now. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate because we're all, you know, we're all different facets of the same single gem, you know, I mean, and that's really the truth that we all have to see. And maybe we have different ideas about what's best, but the unifying factor is that we all want what's, we all want what's best for everybody, you know? And so if we can just all start with that premise, like, hey, 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 everybody, can we all agree? We all want what's best. We just have different ideas about what that best might be. Yeah. Okay. So what's your idea of what that best might be? Okay. What's my idea of what that best might be? All right. Maybe there's a compromise in between. Honestly, I think, you know, one of the things is the two party system highlights direct opposition and contrast. And I really, uh, I really do believe that as soon as we throw a third, at least a mix, ideally even more, where there's multiple people with platforms and we're listening to all their ideas, then it becomes about real leaders ideas and we have real choices right now it's just you know your side in the war it's like it's like setting up for civil war you know and that's not a that's not a place to be in i mean the civil war wouldn't have been the civil war if there if there was the north if there was the south and then there was the east and then there was the west i mean it might have been an entire clusterfuck but at least for everybody around you know and and it would have broke this kind of this this very polarized bifurcated system that we're in and i think that's that's really that's really necessary to kind of give these alternate views and say like all right what's everybody what's everybody thinking now of course in my example there was obviously you know a clear moral choice and i think a lot of people think that there's a clear moral choice in this election as well um but just you have to sit down with people and understand what they're really what they really care about and like it's it's going to ultimately boil down to very human and typically very compassionate things. Yeah, I've always had this idea that it would be funny, um, a funny social experiment to travel to like very polarized places, right? Like inner city Detroit and then like rural Alabama with a whiteboard and say, write down the three most important things to you in your life. And I guarantee you that two out of the three for everyone would be the same, right? You'd have like family, spirituality, safety, food, shelter. It's like, oh, okay, cool. So we're actually all on the exact same fucking page, (laughs) you know? Yeah, and everything else is just smoke and mirrors. Yeah, 100%. Well, dude, I've listened to your podcast for a long time when we're touring. You know, there's like three podcasts that are always on rotation and yours is one of them, but I really don't know that much about you. So um, tell me a little bit about like just where you grew up and how that led into you having the life that you have now and how, like how you got into on it and just tell me a little bit about your story of just like where you grew up, how you grew up and how that led to you starting one of the coolest companies ever. Thank you, man. Um, I was always an athlete, you know, I mean, my, my family, my mom was, uh, she was a former pro tennis player, went to the semifinals of Wimbledon. And so she was a baller and, uh, um, my dad was kind of a, an, an athlete in a, in a variety of different ways, not great at anything, but good enough at anything. Watch him, you know, competing, playing, you know, volleyball at down at the beach and playing backup games in our backyard and tennis matches. My mom would always beat him. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, watching him ping pong, everything. So it kind of instilled this desire really 
compete in all of these sports and, and be my, you know, be the best version of myself possible. I ended up choosing basketball as my primary route. And, um, and so that was something I was really passionate about, but also I was really drawn to philosophy from an early age as well, you know, reading stories and, and philosophical kind of essays and understanding the world and um, really everything. So there was that track, there was the athletic track that kind of guided me early and then philosophy was also coming on board. And then really my whole spiritual life shifted when I went on a vision quest uh, right after high school. And so, you know, 21 years ago, I went out in the mountains and I drank a psilocybin mushroom tea and uh, I had no understanding of spirituality. My family didn't have a spiritual background, um, but I felt my whole body evaporate. And the only thing that remained could only be described as my soul or consciousness or one, some other word that I had no, you know, physical gnosis of, no understanding of. And then that set me off on my, you know, experiential spiritual journey. And, uh, and really, it was a convergence of all those things, you know, wanting to be at my best, you know, physically, even mentally as well, you know, whether it was playing chess or writing or, um, and then spiritually, all of the practices that I engaged in. And on it was really more focused on the physical and mental, of course. Um, but the podcast and everything I've done subsequently is all about spiritual optimization. So really while on it carries the moniker total human optimization it's really my own flag that i've been flying and will continue to fly for the rest of my life yeah man it's um i think the thing that's cool about on it is i just went through this big transformation of like you know last february we and we found out that we weren't going to be touring you know uh doing Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu, I always was like, man, it'd be cool to put some weight on. Cause I've always been, I've always been at like 150. And then when I found out we weren't touring, I was like, okay, well, fuck it, man. I'm going to put everything I have into getting big. Like I'm going to do this, you know, I'm just going to really buckle down. I got up to 183. Um, and I found myself taking like all of these supplements, right? I went to like the standard, uh, you know, the premier nutrition spot that has the like, you know, axe and sledge and all like the big bodybuilding supplements. And it was about like a month in, right. I was like, man, I just, I can't imagine that it's good for me to be drinking three different beverages that taste like Kool-Aid every day. Mm -hmm. You know, like regardless if there's the nitric oxide booster and all of these things in there, it shouldn't taste like Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? Like, and right. there shouldn't be. Right three different ones and it shouldn't be neon green. Um, so tell me how, when you were starting on it, that you made the decision to, I don't know, the products all seem very clean. You know, there isn't, the goal doesn't seem to be like, oh yeah, this is going to make you fucking huge, you know? Yeah, because what is, what is making you huge do for you? You know, I was always about purpose. I'm not about you know, aesthetics are great, but aesthetics are a byproduct of your forming in a really great way. I think the movie 300 was actually a massive shift in the zeitgeist for people. Because before that, it was all Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, or Sylvester Stallone, like they were the hero, and you had to be fucking swole. Yeah, you know, and that was what everybody cared about. And then 300 comes out. And like bodies were lean and, and like efficient. And then you could see all, you know, the ladies being like, wow, look at these guys. And then you can see the guys being like, wow, look at these guys. And 
it was really all about performance. Now they all trained at a gym called Jim Jones, which is a precursor for CrossFit style training. Um, and really just one of the old school, like legendary gyms in the world. And so that was kind of the concept that I always gravitated towards was just always performance. And of course, as a basketball player, I remember one time I took a, a pre-workout before I played a game, like one of those classic ones with like a rhino and a shiny foil label and like mm -hmm. seven, like a Scrabble letter score of a hundred, you know, up all the X's and Z's and whatever the fuck was in the name. And I remember I was, I had so much energy. I was just charging to the basket like a bull. And when I wasn't getting a charge, I would get fouled and I would be at the free throw line and my foot would be tapping because there were so many stimulants in the, in the thing that I took that I like, I couldn't stay still. And that was embarrassing. And I kept missing my free throws. And I was like, wow, like this does not work for actual competition. Like this might work if I'm just trying to bench press in the gym, you know, but it's not going to work when I'm actually trying to compete. So I knew, you know, I had that in, in, in my mind to make a line of people would actually help them perform to be accretive to their overall health rather than hitting a turf but ultimately degrading that we're all working with yeah i love that yeah it's interesting trying to learn how to um because one thing that i noticed was i put on all of that mass and then it was like my you know like i took the frame of a truck and put it on what used to be a sports car small sports car engine and my cardio went to shit and so, yeah, I mean, I was stronger and performing better in certain areas, but as you can imagine, dude, if you're trying to spar with somebody and your cardio is shit and, you know, your gas tank is great for this song, but not this song, you know, it kind of inhibits you. So, yeah, yeah. I've been on the, on the hunt. And what was really interesting was like asking these at these supplement stores of just like, can you just order these ingredients? Like, is there anywhere that you can just get the thing without the Kool-Aid flavoring? They're like, eh, not that I know of. So it's really cool to see, uh, to see that, you know, on it exists. Cause I think there's a huge demand for it for people that give a shit of what they're putting in their body. Cause my rule is always like at the grocery store is if I look at the back of the label and I don't know what something is, then I'm not going to right. eat it, you know? Yeah. Input equals output. You know, I mean, that's just the fundamental law of physicality. What you, we are literally made up of the things we consume, like people, People imagine that we grow, I think, sometime magical process where we just, you know, add on new bones and the cells regenerate. Like, how does that happen? It happens from the things we put in our body, everything we put in our body, and even the things we put on our body, you know, get in our bloodstream and become, it's really important attention to every ingredient that, you know, we consume. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about plant medicine, just because I know that's a huge part of your story. Um, and it mm. seems to be something that you, mm. um, obviously you had that first initial experience, but how did you, how did you get into the ayahuasca thing? I've still yet to do it. My wife has done it. I have lots of friends that make it a point to do it once or twice a year. Um, and I know it's a huge part of your life. So how did you get into those circles? and? Um, what has it done for you? 
Well, ayahuasca is just, it's one of the great plant medicines. You know, it's, it's in the pantheon of, uh, of the great allies that we have available. But as I said, you know, my first experience was a good 12 years before first ayahuasca experience, and that was with psilocybin. And, you know, subsequently through that period, I was continuing to experiment with different medicines under the shamanic and kind of ceremonial care. And when I started to learn about ayahuasca, I was like, oh, wow. I mean, this sounds like a radically unique and incredibly powerful tool. I have to experience it. And I'm just incredibly grateful that I did. You know, they call ayahuasca the vine of death or the vine of the soul, because one of the things that ayahuasca will reliably do is it will help you confront and go face to face with whatever your greatest fear is. And for me, you know, and for most of us, there's a fear of death that is lurking in our psyche. And our idea of death is obviously something that can be surrendered when we understand from a different perspective and a different purview. And that's really what ayahuasca did. Not only did it help me confront my fear of death and, uh, you know, some incredibly challenging visions where ultimately I was forced to surrender to my own mortality in any variety of different ways. And then also awaken me to the reality of the unborn and undying aspect of self. It really helped lift, you know, one of the greatest fears um, that I think I carry, which is that fear of death. Now, I don't want to die. You know, I would much prefer to live. I have lots of things to do and I rather enjoy life for the most part. So, you know, I'm not eager for it, but nonetheless, like taking the taking the sting and, and rounding the corners on the jagged edges of your fear of death is um, incredibly, incredibly valuable. So what do you think makes somebody like a good candidate? Like my buddy, Greg, um, he runs a retreat center in Guatemala and he always jokingly says, well, it's for everyone, but it's not for everyone. Um, like, what do you, what do you think is a good like marker for when, it's time for someone because I've had so many opportunities to do it. And at one point I had one planned and then three days before it happened, I called it off and was just like, something didn't feel right. Um, so like, what do you think, what do you think is a good precursor for like knowing like, okay, cool, I'm ready for this. Or is it just like a fight where you're just like, fuck the fear I'm going in. Sometimes, you you know, a lot of have a knowing and you'll have a calling is, is that if if you're not really called to it and you're not really choosing it, let's say you're going, he's going or you're going because it's just the time is there. When it gets really gnarly and it typically will, then you're going to start the process of second guessing while you're there. You know, and you're going to be like, and maybe I should have been done at the wrong time. And that whole process is really self-defeating and will, you know, prevent you from really accessing the best parts of the medicine you can still fight your way through but ultimately you want to really choose it and know that you're there and whatever comes that you're ready and when you can say like i'm choosing this and no matter what happens you know i back this choice and i'm ready for whatever comes at that point you're you're really prepared and you know ayahuasca will give you typically exactly what you need now the caveat being that you have to be with a uh, a practitioner and really a practitioner who has impeccable ethics and impeccable motivations. Just because someone's a shaman doesn't mean they're a good person. You know, ayahuasca is born in the jungle and you know, there is the law of the jungle, the strong eat the weak. And so 
if an ayahuasca shaman is trying to take advantage of a Westerner who's going to drink ayahuasca with them, they don't think of themselves as an evil person. They just think of themselves as the jaguar and you're the taper, you know, you're the food. And, and that's the, the, we have to understand that that cultural system is in place. It's not like I am the evil source of I'm going to, you know, it's not like a Batman villain. It's just they're ascribing to a different, different idea. And, and I think, you know, the great shamans ascribe to the other idea, which is uh, I am a man and I'm here to heal everyone. And I'm here, you know, no matter what, to be uh, a vehicle and a vessel for somebody's healing. So it's really important you get with a shaman and a facility that's, you know, of, the, of impeccable standards. But um, and other than that, if you really choose it and you're really ready to surrender and let go and face whatever comes and, uh, and do so with, you know, kind of uh, a light heart and, uh, and a lot of courage, then it's for you. How can people discern? Because I know there's a lot of traditions that kind of weave in the darkness where that's like part of the vibe. Um, how can people that are interested in it, you know, what can they use to discern who is a good shaman and who's a bad one? Well, what you're saying about darkness is it's important to kind of understand what you're saying. So their dark energy does not mean that it's predatory, mm -hmm. right? Like I think separating like darkness from predatorial, you know, behavior, because you want to go into the darkness. There's a reason why ayahuasca ceremonies are in the pitch dark for the most part, because it is going to be scary and it's supposed to be scary, but they blow out the candle for a reason. If we all did ayahuasca in the daylight, you know, it, it would be much more mild and much chiller. And, and a lot of the churches, the ayahuasca churches, like the Church of Santa Daime, the UDV, they, they do time and you're in a situation and you're standing up and you're sitting down and that's a different type of, different type of ceremony, you know, and, and in that ceremony, it actually mitigates a lot of the, you know, particularly challenging factors that you might encounter. Now, does it deny you the possibility for, and experiences by any means but you know a lot of these ceremonies are taking place in the dark and where the just the sounds of the jungle and there's you know even some kind of macabre vibe to it but it doesn't mean that it's predatory you know you can in a ceremony that's all crystals and rainbows and talking about auras and you know playing but it could still be absolutely predatory so <clears throat> that could be very light in appearance but really insidious in nature so determining whether something is actually predatory or not is the key thing and i did a shaman i did a podcast recently with a, a shaman named maestro hamilton souther and we talked about that a bit um you know and i asked him that same question and it's really just a, a felt sense it's like <clears throat> you know if you're around a dog that you know is a little sketchy even if they're kind of like being chill but you know like that motherfucker my bite and you just have that feeling you like look in its eyes there's just something about it that you can feel it i think we have to really trust of an intuition that's available and if if you encounter that situation then no matter how deep you're in no matter what deposit you paid you know back out and you might have some resistance come up and you might actually in your head but being able to tap into your intuition and know if you're getting that that predatory vibe 
uh, it's important to, to back out of that situation. Now, if it's too late, you've already drunk and then you get the vibe and you're already there. At that point, you know, just connect to the deepest, purest love and light that you can find and, you know, hold that, hold that space of love and hold that space of light. And that brings you to an energy level that all of the predatory aspects just won't be able to touch. And, and then as much as you can go back to love, uh, um, that of any dark forest. Yeah, dude, that's, that's sound advice. You know, I'm, dude, I'm such a skeptic by nature, you know, like my, my wife gives me shit about it all the time, but I just have a really hard time. Like, you know, just like the new age spiritual community is so full of, you know, white guys that change their name to some like ethereal sounding thing. And then now they have a, you know, now they're shamans. And I'm just like, well, how did that, how did that happen, dude? You know, like right. <laughs> you were like a fucking PA major earlier this year, you know, and now you're shaman, um, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, it's something that I, and I think that was kind of what was happening for me of the ceremony that I had lined up where I was just like, I don't know, dude, I'm kind of just like a, you know, for me, I'd always been intrigued by Hindu philosophy. So I went to Nepal, like I wanted to see it with my eyes and go see bodies cremated and go to Pashapudana and like, see the whole thing. So I think the route for me has to be full on like in the jungle, like being like, no, this guy doesn't speak English. We're good. <laughs> you and, know? You'll, and you'll feel it, man. I mean, like when you get around like one of those real, you know, indigenous wizards, like you know, Maestro Alberto is a is a great example of that. Um, Maestro Alberto Davila, he's the the most you know kind of one of the most potent. I've been with some amazing shamans, but he's one of the most potent shamans I've been. I'm, you know, you baseball can be you know kind of laughing and doing his kind of keeping to himself. But uh, one of the things I always say is you can tell a spiritual master by the sound of their laughter. Like so many people you talk about, you know these of shamans and quotes that have you know changed their name and are wearing all the power amulets and whatever and and trying to play the role of shaman you know they're you know dangerous to be with not because of predatorial nature more likely that they're dangerous just because they're going to be inept they're not yeah. going to be able to hold the energy of the container so you have to really look out for that and and there's really you know laughter in there because they know they're they know they're faking it you know, and when you're when you're putting on, on a spiritual role, you know, that's different than someone like Maestro Alberto who's in a, you know, a beat up t-shirt cap and he's out there. And then but then when it comes time for ceremony, he puts on his, you know, he puts on a gear and just directly communing with this, the ancestral spirits in a way that just blows your mind. And uh, and there's special about someone with that lineage that's been you know, grandfather to grandson for, you know, 50 generations and just has that wisdom embedded. I mean, I think he was drinking ayahuasca at age seven, you know, <laughs> so it's like, this is in it, this is in his blood. And, and that's a, uh, it's, it is really special to go pay ayahuasca house call like that. Yeah. Have you ever seen any, anything get, go super awry at a ceremony? Of yeah. Of course. Not, with ayahuasca, but because I haven't, I haven't played around with anything, but you know, you know the top tier indigenous shamans, and I've always done it in in Peru. So um, I'm actually going to go down to Costa 
Rica and experience it with Peruvian shamans uh, if the world is open in January, which I have some doubts that it will be. But, um, you know, that'll be my first experience outside of Peru, but it's still a Peruvian shaman and it's still kind of jungle out there in, in Costa Rica. Very but um, I've seen a lot of sh- I've seen a lot of ceremonies go awry. I've seen an aboga ceremony go awry. I've seen psilocybin ceremonies go awry. I've heard plenty of stories of ayahuasca ceremonies going around uh, and typically people who don't have the spiritual strength to hold the, to hold the space, you know, they can't handle, they take some themselves and they give everybody else and the energy. It's a very like collective energetic medicine and you don't know what's going to happen. You know, I mean, two grams on one night is going to be dramatically different than two grams of mushrooms on another night. Like you, you don't know. So you have to be prepared for everything. When you go, you got to know that like, it would be like being with, uh, um, being out with, a. if you're out with, if you're out in like a, a dangerous territory, you want to be with the Navy SEAL. That's like, yeah, I'm good if there's an insurgency of 10 people or if there's, you know, a, a feral hog that wants to kind of root around. I'm not just going to protect you against the hog. I'm going to protect you against a real strong force that might try to be ready for whatever. Um, and that's ready for whatever. Cause you don't know. It could be like bunnies or it could be a busk or it could be, you know, people with guns, you know, all proverbially I'm talking metaphorically about yeah. like what you might encounter from an energetic and gravity standpoint, but you want someone prepared for the worst case scenario. Yeah, man, it's a really serious thing. You know, I grew up going to a lot of uh, jam band concerts. So I've seen people, uh, you know, in- improperly use psychedelics for a good portion of my life. And and being someone that's experienced, um, you know, what what happens when you lose those tethers and really, you know, your only option is to take the ride. You can't, there's no like eject button. And that's a real, yeah. <laughs> that's a real fucking scary place to be. You know, my... I struggled with alcoholism for a really long time. It's very inherent in my family's history. Um, and I did the, you know, the Western approach. I went to treatment and it worked for a little while. And then, we, you know, when I would go to AA meetings, it was a lot of people just sitting around talking about how shitty their lives used to be. And I was like, man, this just isn't the type of life I want to lead. Like I want to, I want to be focused on what's next, not what's already happened, you know? And, it's this hilarious story because I, uh, I used to be a big rock climber and I'd loaned a friend of mine, like a big, huge black diamond cam. And he ended up, you know, just keeping it. And then he goes, well, yeah, man, I'll pay you for it when I can. And then I was listening to this Terrence McKenna lecture and he's like, well, if you really want to get to the root of the problem, you know, you should eat five grams of mushrooms by yourself. You know, he's talking about the hero dose. And as I'm listening to that, my friend texts me and he goes, hey, man, uh, a friend of mine just gave me an ounce of mushrooms. Could I just give you a handful of mushrooms in exchange for this piece of climbing gear? This was while I was listening to that lecture being like, fuck, maybe that's what I should do. And then he sends me this text and I did it. And I always joke that it was the worst and the best night of my life. I had never tripped by myself. (laughs) Um, And when I ate them, I kind of was really focused on my childhood and all of the trauma that I had been through, like really intentionally being like, okay, cool. I'm going to work through all this stuff. And it's, you know, and that's just not how it went. You know, it was this like, (laughs) it was like the scariest, darkest night of my life. 
and just all of these images of my dad and all this just super, super heavy, scary shit where I was just like crying and then had the, the standard where I was like, okay, this is just how I'm going to be forever. This is never going to wear off. I did too much. See, that's the, that's the one thing, like everything else is, is that thing. Because what the thing, the reason to have a guide is you have, or somebody that even a sitter, it doesn't need to be a shaman, you don't need a mushroom shaman necessarily. But let's say, you know, I was there, Kyle Kingsbury was there, or somebody else who could face like that, we'd have been like, hey, man, you didn't do too much. And it's going to be over in three hours. Yeah, like, I like look, and I've done this before many times when I've been in the space and somebody's having one of those situations, I'll just look at them. I'll like, just really deeply connect with them, look them right in the eyes and say, three hours from now, or however many hours it is, if it's a DMT ceremony, it's closer, it's 30 minutes. I'll be like, we're going to be in the kitchen. We're going to be eating snacks. Yeah. Like that <laughs> yeah. is where, that is how this story ends. It's in the kitchen eating snacks. So know that and experience yeah. everything you got to experience between, but just know that that's your destination. When I, whenever I say that, they're like, oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. And then it just then and then they can get right back into the into the work, which bullish, but it's just nice to not have the doubt that like, oh fuck, did I just enter a bardo of you know darkness and destruction? Did I just go, you know, Dante's Inferno accidentally? Yeah, um, and that was that was certainly what I thought I had done because it was so intense and it seemed, you know, you time is gone in there, you know. And I would, at one point I had convinced myself like, dude, it's been a couple of days. You've been, you've been down here for two days. I was just like, okay. And then going through the thought process of like, how am I going to explain this to everybody? Like, Hey, I was just trying to work through my shit. And now I'm this, <laughs> you know, now I'm this like puddle of, you know, melted consciousness. And, but at the tail end of that, um, you know, I came to, and it was early in the morning and I went outside and I just had the aha. I was like, I'm never drinking alcohol again. No problem. Like that's, it's not even a, it's so weird because I think we focus so much on treating addiction and you see that with Ibogaine, you know, like when I first heard of Ibogaine, they were using it right to treat uh, opiate addicts. And I think the Western approach to addiction is to try to change, you know, people's thought patterns on how they look at addiction. And it's like, I, nothing really worked for me but that and it wasn't that i was like spending that entire experience thinking about my alcoholism i was thinking about all of the shit that likely attributed to me continuing to go back to it right but at the at, at the end of that trip like i always say man it just literally cured me i've never i'm a fucking touring musician you know alcohol is around me nonstop, and i never have once even had this inkling of like oh maybe i could have a drink or you know it's just it's, it's gone it's just gone um so I'm, you know, I'm very intrigued by the power of psychedelics to heal things like that, you know, because I think that's, uh, you know, my wife is trying to get in with maps because she's a psychotherapist. Um, and she herself has, has personally worked with a lot of, uh, of the different medicines. And she really, really wants to get into that realm of, you know, of healing things like trauma and addiction rather than treating them. Yep. That's the big paradigm shift. I mean, we've, we have a... <clears throat> we have an indefinite treatment paradigm and whether that's an indefinite treatment with a pill or that's an indefinite treatment with talking or meetings or whatever. Um, 
but that's not the paradigm that the psychedelic medicines offer and that's not what the clinical research is showing they're showing cures and cures are not not great business and i'm not a conspiracy guy i'm a human interest guy and yeah yeah we're just humans are very good at deluding themselves into believing and propagating things that benefit you know your own self-interest and it's just uh it's just the self-serving bias is actually the technical term for it and i think that's part of the reason and and it's just also a new paradigm that people you know have to adopt and assimilate this understanding that like we don't have to manage chronic conditions we can cure them and it's something that psychedelic medicine is showing it's something that you know someone like joe dispenza is proving through his work with the active harnessing of the placebo effect through his meditation and and visualization and emotional anchors there's so many exciting things um that really change the paradigm of how we get to a state of wellness and thriving yeah you know it's it, talking about the placebo thing it's really interesting there's a band called wookie foot and that was through that band was how i met nako and trevor and how i kind of like you know became a member of this like extended community of artists um now these guys are out there you know their whole thing is make believe and the power of suggestion so back in the day they would throw these, they, they bought this giant mansion and turned it into a psychedelic fun house. Like they replaced a staircase with a slide, you know, every party that they did had a theme, like some of these stories are outrageous, but the most intriguing of the stories to me is they would have, you know, the Kool-Aid out or whatever, and they would tell everybody that they had been dosed. You know, everyone would be <laughs> drinking from this and they would tell everyone yeah. that they had taken LSD and uncle Joe would spend hours talking people down from these super intense psychedelic experiences that they were having where they were losing their mind. And he was like, I would always wait as long as I could to tell them that they weren't on LSD. Cause I wanted to see how far, how far out somebody could get on their own belief that they were on drugs. And you know, and just like what an outrageous, experiment that is and when we see like double blind placebo tests there's always that percentage of people that got better taking a placebo you know they got better taking a pill of nothing most almost everybody does get better to some degree from taking a pill of nothing and it just depends on how much they believe in that future reality that future reality then signals to their present reality you know what's actually happening like we have we're we're like a we're a machine that can turn off and on our gene expressions through epigenetics we can produce proteins we can produce everything we have receptors for in the brain that psychedelics activate we have those receptors not because we were aware that i mean it's a kind of a beautiful you know poetic story that we developed these receptors because we were in communion with the mushrooms and the dmt already no it's not that's not the case we're able to produce those molecules ourselves we're able to actually activate those receptors endogenously. And that's why people have these, you know, moments of these deep experiences from meditating on a mountain or, you know, I was in the darkness and pitch darkness for six days. And I had, I want to hear about that. Tell I me about seven, that. Yeah. I had 72 hours of a DMT experience, just like ayahuasca, because my brain was able to produce the same molecule that I take in a cup of tea or, I woke in a, in a pipe of mimosa hostilis. Like I was able to create it and have that. And I, and I will tell you about the darkness. It's a hell of a story. 
But, but ultimately, the, the point is that we have the ability to on and turn off our, our genetic expressions, and we have the ability to produce all of the compounds that we need. Opioids, you know, we have the ability to produce those. You know, if we want a mystical experience, we can produce those. Now, it's not as reliable as taking a pill or taking drinking a cup of ayahuasca, that's for sure gonna get you there. Um, but it's possible. And when we start to harness our own mind and actually start to learn our operating system, we really have personal power at that point. And I think people dramatically underestimate how much power we actually have. Yeah, I, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. I see it. Um, I see it with fighters all the time when they're recommended that they need this surgery or that surgery and they just go, no. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So tell me a bit about this darkness retreat. My friend Greg, um, literally, I said, Hey, I'm having Aubrey on. Do you have any questions that you'd like me to ask? And his question was, Tell me about the six days in the darkness. What the fuck was that? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yes. If you were, if you were looking at the prospect, six Today, you're going to be in absolute pitch darkness, not a pinprick of light. There's no difference between open eyes and closed eyes for six days straight. You're in absolute silence and isolation. People are going to drop food outside of your door. Now, a lot of people find this prospect terrifying, and some people find this prospect like, wow, that sounds like heaven. And which and not very few people are in between. What are your what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on it when you look at that? I'm a pretty heady guy, man. That sounds scary as shit to me. <laughs> yeah. And that seems to be response. I think for me it was <clears throat> it was definitely like intimidating but exciting, you know, and uh I was in a really challenging place. I was, you know, at the very tail end of my polyamory journey. And um I just, as much as my, I put my heart into it and as much as I tried to get to a good place with it of not being, you know, pretty much wrecked when my sweetheart would, you know, sleep with, you know, her other boyfriends and fall in love with her other boyfriends and all these other things. I never really got, I was never able to get there, you know, and, uh, and I understood it philosophically, but I carried a lot of trauma and a lot of pain and a lot of challenge from that. So my normal waking state was in enough suffering and I was kind of stuck in this spot that that actually made it like, yeah, fuck it. It's not going to be worse than it's not, it's not than what I'm experiencing now currently. So Coca, let's go. And so that was really, I didn't approach it with any real apprehension just because of that fact. I didn't feel like I had as much to lose at that point it was a challenging period of my life for sure. So I went in um, without a lot of that fear. Uh, but I also, in some ways, underestimated how deep the process would go. So the first two days, it's just reorienting to a whole new world. I mean, it's very odd. Well, I, I've, never, I've never done a Vipassana thing. I've never been in silence, you know, for any extended period of time. I don't remember, you know, at least at some point I'm, I'm writing something down. So there's like some kind of communication or I'm, you know, I've been somewhat isolation to myself in the daytime, but there's always some form of listening or, or writing or, or someone communicating. So that was an interesting thing. And then of course, you know, no company. I was more used to that. I've spent like 20 day stretches of isolation where I haven't been around people. So that wasn't that, un that wasn't that unusual, but then, 
the idea that there was no difference between eyes open and eyes closed and it was just indefinite, like that was a trip. And so the first few days is just reorienting to that world. And my mind was just fucking racing. I mean, I decided, I decided I was going to move houses. I was going to start all these different, pro like everything externally was going to change. And I had all of these meticulous plans about how all of these external things were going to change. And then day three, I started to have the visions. And the vision started coming, flashing lights in my head and, and everything that I would see at the onset or the twilight of an ayahuasca journey started to have incredibly powerful visions and that moved me through a deeply emotional process um, that ultimately understand my attachment to life which led me to um, you know a fear of enjoying myself and a fear of enjoying my life and a fear of loving too much because I was afraid of losing it and that was like a big big pearl that I got that I was intentionally keeping things kind of a little depressed just because I was afraid of the contrast of having to let everything happened if I really allowed myself to love fully and really allowed myself to live and enjoy fully. So coming to these deep realizations and, and ultimately realizing that all of that work I did in the first two days about deciding everything that I was going to change in my external life, all of that was meaning only thing that matters was changed my internal life and understanding that that's my life was actually perfect. I just had to change me because no matter what I changed externally, I was going to bring my old self with me and I needed a new self to be reborn, you know, from the ashes of that darkness. And, uh, and really that's, you know, that's absolutely what happened. And um, I mean, it was, I experienced all the emotions, all of the, all of the tears, all of the rage, all of the things all in my own little, black cave <laughs> which was actually a very comfortable room and looked like a airbnb when the lights were on uh like a little bed and breakfast room or something like that um but yeah man it was a it was a wild experience man i think the thing that i find most inspiring and and uh intriguing about you is i'm really attracted to to searchers right i feel like it's the it's the easiest thing in the world to just go here's my job. Here's my partner. You know, here is this little box that is my life. And here is this narrow road that I take. Some questions are better left unasked. And I will just continue to go through the motions. You know, and you just, I think what what we see in the typical American life is we're just doing these things that carry us to the next day. And then you open your eyes and you're 50 and you're like, oh shit, you know, or, you know, and then those midlife crises happen because people go, mm -hmm. well, wait, what the fuck? I was just in college and now I have yeah. this house and this wife and this car. Like, what does this all mean? And I think how those things are prevented is by turning over all of the stones. And I, I think the reason that you're such an important public figure, man, is not just because you're doing this self-work, but because you're so open and honest um, cause it's really easy to just say like, oh yeah, I go do ayahuasca sometimes and that's how I keep my shit together. And then, you know, I did this darkness retreat, but the way that you openly share what you're getting from it, I think it's super, super important because there is this, this fear of, well, if I ask that question, then this one might arise and then this one might arise. So it might just be better to, 
you know, to stay in my lane. So I think it's really cool that mm-hmm. you've, you've, you've seemingly dedicated your life to trying to find out what the fuck it is, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we'll, and we'll continue to, you know, I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's a, it's something that I'm really passionate about and it's, there's always another layer. There's always a deeper layer. There's always another thing to uncover and to learn and, and also to just to, you're you're a martial artist you understand that yeah you can you can bring the skills that you learned 10 years ago and if you stopped training you know now 10 years from now you'd still have some skills but you're not going to be nearly as sharp or as honed as if you continued the process and and that's another aspect of it this is training to be a spiritual warrior this is training to be some can handle the chaos internally and externally and so you know, people ask, when are you done? Never. It's like, when are you done working out? I don't know. Never. Like, I'm always going to work out. Like, yeah. when, are you done, when are you done eating clean food? Never. You know, like, this is, a, this, is, this is a way of life. You know, I'm going to do this as long as I'm, as long as I'm able. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing to, to share with the average person. You know, because people all the time, well, don't you ever get bored eating like this and like this? And, and it, for me, I'm just like, it's not, I don't look at it that way. I look at, I need exercise, healthy food, you know, my meditation, like I need these things for it all to make sense. So for me, it's not a matter of like, you know, looking better naked is a really cool byproduct of it but it has, you know, that's not my motivation for it. My motivation for it is to keep my engine clean. So when I hit those bumps in the road, I go, okay, well, this really isn't that big of a thing. This is just a part of life, you know? And when I was in Nepal, the first week I was there, I just did this huge circle around the Himalaya and we went all over all of the tallest passes over there. But each day you kind of have an end goal so you wake up okay today we'll go to namche well today we'll get to this village and we'll get to this village and about you know the fourth or fifth day up there i kept being like well every village is the same it's a tea house and a monastery like you know what nothing is really that different and then it hit me like oh the walk it's the walk that is the trip that i'm here for it's not getting to the next monastery because it's undoubtedly going to look almost identical to the monastery in this place <laughs> it's the walk and what's happening during that walk what you're working through what you're thinking about you know and i found myself i quit looking at my feet you know i started walking with my head up and really just like soaking everything in and that's something that i that i try to carry with me and then and, and same thing with martial arts you know i uh, when I started jujitsu, I always had this thing that the purple belt was, everyone says the same thing, right? If you get your purple belt, you're probably going to be a black belt. And so I, that was always my goal. Like, I got to get my purple belt. I got to get my purple belt. Well, I got it a couple months ago and I was like crushed at the like, uh, I thought this was going to feel amazing, right. you know? And it's like, really, all it right. did was mark okay. to me like, oh yeah, yeah, dude, but you're still five, 10 years away from a black belt. And then everyone says, you know, well, once you get a black belt, you start over. So I finally, after this like soul crushing thing of thinking it was going to be this grand celebration, it was like, oh, this is just another village. This is just another fucking monastery. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that, premise, that premise of that's the premise of the boat on the day, right? It's like 
you all you got is all you got is your day you got what's in front of you all of these destination illusory there's one destination it's your death you know everything else is a journey and it's just these little pins that we put in the road that we think are significant but you know sure aim for that you know it's good that you had a plan that you're going to go to namche like good good it's good that you know you're going to namche but it yeah. doesn't matter when you get to namche it matters like how you yeah absolutely um dude i really want to pick your brain on your experience with with polyamory because it's something um i'm a serial monogamist and i have had uh, a few different friends try out the polyamory thing um and it always seemed like a precursor for the end of their relationship and in all three cases of people close to me it was um and you know it was interesting uh my friend phil when he was doing it he was he would tell me all the time like yeah she's going to see one of her other boyfriends man and i'm just like super fucked up about it and i'm feeling this is how i'm feeling about it but that's just my shit this is the societal programming that i've been fed and i in my head i was always like or you know or maybe you're really attached to this person and you want to share your life with this person and it's hurting you that she you know wants to go seek this outside of you so the feelings that you're feeling are natural and that it's actually your heart it's not you know the societal conditioning that you've been taught but this is actually your heart telling you like no this isn't right for me um so tell me a little bit about your experience and what that was like going through that and um and what you learned from it i mean that's <laughs> that's a lot to it's a lot to express but let me go off what you said and and kind of how that contrasts a little bit with what my understanding is because i actually do believe that you know there there is a place that you can get to where you can transcend the jealousy and operate from a place of pure compersion where you are just come so the word compassion is etymology is to be with someone in their suffering mm -hmm. and that's where you actually identify and drop into their experience which is typically negative you don't have compassion for you know just won the championship right yeah you have but you can't have compersion i remember when i would watch tj dillashaw when he beat henan barrow he was a good friend at that time and man i was like i was so unbelievably happy and when i was also friends with uh cody garbrandt cody no love when yep. he beat and when he beat dominic cruz it was the same thing it was like the happiest moment when bodie miller won the gold medal and when he won at beaver creek like there was experiences where I was with my friends and there's no fucking way they were happier than me because yeah. <laughs> like a human being couldn't be more happy. They were maybe as happy, you know, but like, I was like, I can't even describe to you how good that felt. And that's compersion. That's to really be with someone in their, in their pleasure and in their happiness. And so I ultimately believe that it is possible to get that, get to that place with your partner. Hypo philosophically i'm talking and mm -hmm. i also believe that the nature of divine love so if you imagine divine love love being like the sun you know the sun doesn't say you tree over there with the pretty leaves you are worthy of my sunlight you shrub over there you are not worthy because you have thorns and like the sun just loves and there's an infinite amount of love a mother who has you know her third child doesn't love her former two children, you know, moderately less because her child, you know, time is a, time is a finite resource, but love is not a finite resource. So philosophically, 
I do believe that polyamory is a sound philosophy. Now, that said, <clears throat> going into it, I said, all right, this philosophy makes I, as a philosopher and as someone who's willing to go into the deepest, darkest cave in my own, I can point and I can make it. And with six years of me doing my absolute damn best, I couldn't. And so what the place that I ultimately arrived is that I'm not saying that there aren't people better than me. I know there are. There are people who are better than actually, who can actually do this. But I also have a deep respect for how fucking difficult it is. And some of it's societal, some of it's biological programming, a lot of other things. Um, some of it might just evolve, involve just a, a radical evolution and trend of our ego and what we know about of, of self and a, and a you know, kind of identification with unicity where you're not only happy for your partner, but you're happy for your partner's partners and you just see the world in this really integral way. But I couldn't do it. No, not really. And, and, and I had moderate success at different points. It wasn't all torture. And I also had some beautiful moments with my other paramours. You know, there was, it wasn't all bad. I mean, there were some absolutely amazing parts and I learned a ton. Um, but fundamentally, it's, it's one of the most difficult roads that I could ever possibly imagine trying to walk. And it, uh, it bested me. It would be like grappling with somebody for six years. And like, you know, maybe you have a few reversals. Maybe you're actually able to you know, make a few moves, advance your position every now and then, but they're tapping you out constantly. And you're always hoping that you'll be better than them. And then finally, after six years, you'll be like, I'm just never going to beat you. <laughs> you yeah. know, like I'm yeah. never going to yeah. fucking beat you. And, and you just have to accept that. So you could continue to go to this place where you're constantly getting your ass kicked or choose a different way. And I've, you know, now I'm in a, in a marriage in a monogamous container with an incredible woman. And um, I don't think I would be so enthusiastic about choosing it if I didn't, you know, take my path of polyamory because I'd always be wondering because of my philosophical understanding of love. But now that I, that's a known, it's a known quantity. Like I know that at my very best, I was like, I don't even think about it anymore. I'm like everything. And then I wasn't happy. That didn't work. And now I am super happy. And this is, this is for me. So I'm really glad that I did it. And, and I have, you know, so many much, you know, uh, respect and, and kind of admiration for people who are sticking in this path because I know how hard it is. Um, but for me, it was just, uh, it was, it was far too difficult uh, for me to actually sustain for any longer than I did. Well, good for you for acknowledging that and keeping it real with yourself rather than like, you know, I've seen a lot of people that just continue to lie to themselves and go, no, this is just my shit. It's my shit rather than just being like, no, this really isn't making me happy. This is actually really making me sad, you know? So yeah. good for you for, you know, being honest with yourself and stepping away from it. You know, I just think there's something, um, something really inherently beautiful about picking a person and saying, okay, well, in this wide sea of endless possibilities, right? Of, you know, billions of people on the planet. I'm picking you. I could do life mm -hmm. with anyone. You could do life with anyone, but I want to do life with you as a unit. You know, I think there's something really 
powerful and sacred about that approach. Um, you know, and the fact that you got to experience the polyamory thing. And like you said, rather than being like having that thing in the back of your head of like, oh, would that work? Would that work? To know it's not for you. That's a powerful thing. I think that, you know, will serve your relationship in a huge way. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people around me, you know, try it out as well and, and learn the, and figure out what works. And I think it's, uh, this is the, this is a show, not tell game. You know, I, it's really hard to like, listen to somebody and be like, Oh, well, now that you told me, you know, try it for myself. Some people, some people will do that. Some people can, you don't seem like that either. Where somebody, Hey man, don't do that. You know, it's not going to work for you. You're like, all right, maybe. Yeah. I'll see if I agree with you. Yeah. I got to taste it. You know? I got to taste it to know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like I said before, man, that you're really open and honest and, you know, something I struggle with sometimes is I, I'm also that way. I'm an external processor. Um, all the boys, whenever they're in the van with me, they always joke. I do all the driving. They always joke that I like hold court. Cause I'll be like thinking in my own head and then I'm like, okay, I need some outside input on this. <laughs> so I overshare a lot, but it's kind of how I process the world. You know, I need to, sometimes I need to know, like, am I crazy for thinking this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and you, you seem to be similar in that where you're an outside processor. Do you, um, do you ever feel like you've overshared or like it's, it's too much or how have you kind of created a, a boundary between like what to share, what not to share? Or are you just like, no, nah, man, let's lay it out on the table and, and sift through it. I mean, it's laying it out there on the table and, uh, you know, I, I will. <clears throat> so I, I mean, there are certain circumstances where I've definitely worn people out, particularly during the polyamory journey. Cause I was just stuck. And when you're stuck, <laughs> you're in like a loop and you keep going over the same shit over and over again. Cause the solution is elusive or so difficult that you can't figure it out. And, Certainly my partner, you know, I so much love and gratitude to Whitney for being my partner during this time. But, you know, it was a tough situation because she didn't she didn't like to talk through things to the extent that I did. I needed to talk through until it was completely yeah. done. So, yeah. you know, I would drag her in on conversations that would last a day or two days. And she'd be like, fuck, like, I just don't want to talk. It's not that the communication was unhealthy. It was just so much. Yeah, that she started to get an aversion like, oh, fuck, we start talking, we might not stop talking. <laughs> yeah. For a long, and then certainly like, you know, I had people fuck with me on my podcast, uh, you know, and different things like, thank God you're not talking about polyamory anymore. Jesus, like I was, I've had enough of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just got to talk about what's I got to talk about what's on my mind. And certainly, you know, my dear friends, like, uh, Eric Godsey and Kyle Kingsbury, you know, lots of time chatting and walking around the aisle, you know, dear friend Caitlin Howe and, and all of like the people really close to me, um, you know, they had to be there. They had to be there. And a lot of times it's quick. You know, a lot of times I just need to like share it and then like get to the, get to the understanding. And once I get to the understanding, then that's it. And then we can move on. But if I'm, if the understanding is elusive and the, and the, and the solution and the action that I need to take I, is unclear. <laughs> I can definitely talk a little too much. Yeah, me too, dude. I spin out. I finally just last year, I just got a therapist and was just like, all right, I'll just pay someone. That's fine. <laughs> you know, like I'll just pay someone to listen to me go off for an hour at a time, you know? 
Um, yeah, which is, it's such a funny thing, man. You know, that's been a huge thing for me and it's, it's cool seeing it like become not a taboo. Once I started openly sharing with people that I go to therapy, it was crazy how many of my adult male friends were like, Oh yeah, who's, you know, I got a therapist too. Who do you see? You know, mm. it's really cool to see, you know, everyone's so focused on the divisiveness, the divisiveness of politics and, and, you know, a lot of the negative, cause that's just what sells, right? Like you don't want to have a news channel where it's like dudes everywhere are going to therapy. It's like, you know, that's not right. a story. <laughs> um, right. And, and what I really see, and you've kind of been at the head of the spear of this movement, I feel like is, yeah, just like on it says of, of human optimization, I feel like we're seeing this huge rise of dudes that are saying, okay, it's okay that I like to fight, but I should also meditate, right? Like, uh, I, I think of the samurai all of the time, right? To learn the sword, you had to pick painting or poetry, and you had to always be having this, this right. balance of the arts, you know? And it's, uh, it's really inspiring to see people particularly men, because it always was such a taboo thing of, of exploring this different side of them and being like, okay, cool, dude, I can be a savage in the gym, but I can also, you know, explore my spirituality. I can explore my sexuality. I can like, and just turning these stones over, man. So like, like I said before, man, I think that's why you're, what you're doing is so important, man. And I, and I really applaud you for, for being so open and sharing everything that you share. Cause I think it's, I think you're helping a lot of people get comfortable with being uncomfortable and you just have like a softer side too. Cause there's the, there's the Jockos and the Tim Kennedys and I love them to death. You know, I had, I had Tim on the podcast mm -hmm. and I just was like, you might be one of my favorite human beings that I've ever met, but <laughs> no it's, doubt, man. you know, but it's, it's cool to see dudes that aren't like I'm a green beret and a ranger and a sniper and, you know, shoot hogs from a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And it's like, it's, it's cool to see like a yeah. softer, a softer, more philosophical version of that, that man, you know, no doubt. No doubt. So, and it's cool when I get to hang with with Tim as well, because we each, you know, some of the things that would absolutely have me shitting my pants, he does on a regular basis and things that would have him shitting it. I do on a regular basis, you know, like the darkness retreat would not be a comfortable place for Tim. No, he knows that he knows mm -hmm. that shit, but he could go deep in enemy territory with a fucking knife and a gun like rambo and he'd be like laughing i feel pretty i feel yeah i feel pretty <laughs> yeah. good here i'd be like where are we what the fuck yeah you know, so it's it's just it's just different but in in that way you know we can both look at each other and kind of nod and be like yeah this is my this is my brother who's you know attacking and tackling the world and, and the world of challenges way that there's a kind of mutual respect that develops when anybody's pushed against resistance externally or internally. So it's yeah, nice man. to be a part of that brotherhood. And, yeah, yeah, man, that's, it's something that I think is really, really important because there's this, this feedback loop in culture that tells us uncomfortability is bad and that's not where you want to be. You want it to be nice and easy. And from what I've seen in my life, whether it's through exercise or jujitsu or Muay Thai or therapy, uh, or psychedelics, it's like, man, the breakthroughs that come from that shitting your pants place are irreplaceable. Like you're never going to remember the day that you sat on the couch, you know, and fucking binged watch Netflix. But you might remember the time that you went and worked out with that dude and almost died and made it through or like, holy <laughs> shit, you know? Right. Right. How did you, every how did day, every day in the cold plunge is, you know, every day in the cold plunge is, is one of those opportunities too. I mean, you look at the cold, you know, it's 
going to hurt. Not only are you going to get the physiological adaptations to that hormetic stressor, you're going to get the mental understanding that I am the person that will walk in that cold. And it's not only that I will, it's how I do it. And am I going to gasp? And am I going to make all of this a big deal and it hurts so bad? Or am I just going to slip in there like a fucking gangster, breathe as much as I need to, and know that I'm the one that can do that? And I think that's really important to know about yourself. And I also have to let you know, I got I to gotta run here pretty soon. So maybe like okay. one last question and yep, we'll, got we'll you. wrap this thing up. I got you. All right. Um, what is the side of Aubrey Marcus that the internet doesn't get to see or hear about? <laughs> uh, well, or, I think or, if you... Or we could frame it like, what's something that most people don't know about you? Yeah. I think if you follow my wife, Vailana Marcus, uh, she always she always tends to capture those moments, and it's me in in my like most in my silliest like boyish you know way that I'm just like playing around like oh I have like figurines that I'll do with, and I'll have like foam nunchucks, and I'll be like whipping around and like laughing and doing stuff, and those are the moments endearing to her. It's not. Of course, I'm giving a talk or I have a great podcast or she's brilliant reciting a poem or, you know, leading a, a group of people through a transformational experience. But like what she really likes better is when my hair's all like mussed up from sleeping on it in a funny way. And I'm in my long sleeve pajamas, which I always sleep in because I get cold at night and I'm just like being a goof. And, and it's the really kind of like human aspects of that where I'm not wearing the king wearing the warrior hat. I'm not wearing the magician hat. I'm not wearing the lover hat. I'm just fucking being a, being a wild, you know, being a wild humanoid and, and just doing my wild humanoid thing. And I think that's really, you know, I'm a guy, but that's the thing that the moment if I started to capture that myself, it would be weird. <laughs> you know, right. like it's not that I don't want to share that, but it's like, here I am being cute and funny. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. It would just ruin it. It wouldn't be cute or funny, but uh, she, she kind of captures that. So you'll see that appearing on, uh, appearing on stories. I also, uh, I've talked about this before, but I'll also always shit with the door open because I like talking to people. Yeah. It's going down. It doesn't really, it doesn't have to be like a close friend or anything. I'll be like, you know, somebody will be coming over and be like, Hey, so like blah, blah, blah. And people think like, Oh, it's such a power move. I'm like, no, it's not a power move. I just would rather just like have a conversation. <laughs> I, I want a little time. company. <laughs> yeah, I want a little company. You know, if I, if I want to go to isolation, I'll go to the dark room. I don't want to go to the bathroom, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. There's, there's some funny things like that, I suppose. I love it, man. Well, I'm, uh, I'm planning on making a trip down to Austin um, to hopefully ch train with, uh, with Tim a little bit. Um, I'd love to connect when I come down, man. It'd be cool to hang with you in person. Amazing, man. I'd love that. I'd love that. We can surf. We can work out. We can do whatever, man. Let's, let's make it happen. And look, I'm a big fan of music, and it's really cool to get to see that you embody a lot of these things as well because, I mean, you are the music you're producing and writing and performing it's you know as deeply deeply spiritual roots and it would be easy to assume that you're you know in that camp of that kind of plastic spirituality you know obviously the the message is a lot deeper than that but you could assume that that would be your portrayal right but you're not and you're very much in that warrior poet that Miyamoto Musashi the you know great at calligraphy great at swordsmanship you know Socrates 
Socrates, who was a warrior and a great philosopher. Like this is the type, this is the archetype that I think it's so important for the world to be out there. So not only am I grateful for your music, but also grateful that you have this podcast and you can show another living example of a spiritual warrior poet. So all the gratitude and reflection right back I, to you, brother. I appreciate that very much, man. Well, yeah, I look forward to hanging with you in person, bro. And uh, yeah, God bless you and, uh, and everything you're doing. And I look forward to, to seeing you, bro. Likewise, man. We'll all make right, it happen. All right. Have a great day. You too, man. Peace. Thanks. Peace. All right, yo, that was Aubrey. I uh, hope you enjoyed. I know it was kind of choppy there, cut out a few times, but I hope you got the gist of what he was saying. Um, yeah, again, super rad, dude. Um, if you're not familiar with Onnit, uh, they have, man, so many cool supplements that'll help you. Even if you're not a fitness fanatic, they have a bunch of nootropics. Uh, they help with brain function and... I was a total fucking skeptic and I did a free trial of alpha brain and my word, (laughs) the irony, I didn't take my alpha brain today. Uh, My word, uh, like reconnaissance of being able to pull a word up or um, I just felt sharp and was like talking, really had the gift of gab going when I used the alpha brain. Um, Need to start using it more. I just refilled my order after the Aubrey podcast. I went to on it and actually got a whole bunch of shit. Um, but yeah, whether you're working out, doing endurance stuff, strength gaining, uh, or just want your brain to work better or your gut to be healthier, they have a bunch of gut biome products. They have, um, like I said, a bunch of mood stuff. Um, and they have, I I believe like a liver detox, but if you want your body to fucking work better and more efficiently, go to onit.com. I'm not sponsored by Onnit. I've just used their shit and I know that it works because I'm very in tune with my body and I push it to the extreme almost daily and the shit works. So make sure you head to Onnit.com and get you some goodies and yeah, that's all I got. Um, Next week on the podcast, we will have um, Erica Greaves and Natalie Backman Uh, who are a part of uh, the organization Unlikely Heroes um, that I've been working with for, I think, four years now. We've raised a bunch of money with them, and what they do is they travel around the world and they rescue young girls from sex trafficking. Um, And they put them in safe houses and get them in school, and it's just one of the coolest organizations ever in the world. And, um, yeah, you know, there's uh, a lot of people talking nowadays about sex trafficking pedophilia and stuff like that and these guys are on the front lines um not just protecting young women but actually rescuing them and getting them to a place where they can start a new life and start over um and the recidivism rate of the work that they do is amazing a lot of the young girls that they end up saving end up in turn working for the organization and saving more girls which is the most badass thing in the world so Uh, Keep an eye out for that podcast. Should be next week or the week following. Um, I have neck surgery on December 2nd. So there'll be a brief hiatus there. But um, yeah, really look forward to to sharing that podcast with you guys and and diving in a little deeper with, uh, with the work that they're doing. All right. Drink water. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind to everyone you encounter. We'll talk to you soon. Peace.